If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for September 8th. 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. And this episode promises to be perhaps our most interesting ever. It also is likely to be our longest ever, uh, but that's a good thing. Lots to get to, primarily an interview that I did just a few days ago with Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell, for those who do not know, is a very well-respected intellectual. He's a best-selling author of numerous incredibly popular and very good books. He's also one of the premier podcasters in the country and a guy whom the mainstream media really has not universal, but a lot of respect for, and understandably so. And the reason why I interviewed him a couple of days ago is that if you know anything about me at all, you know that for most of the last eight years, I have foolishly devoted an enormous amount of my life to trying to figure out what really happened in the so-called Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky child sex abuse scandal, which broke hugely across the, the world in November of 2011. And I have a website called FramingPaterno.com. I've appeared on the Today Show with Matt Lauer twice, once with Dottie Sandusky, Jerry Sandusky's wife, after I had finally concluded after a couple of years of investigation that this whole thing, not just the Joe Paterno part, not just the part about the Penn State administrators, but this whole thing was a myth, a fairy tale. It did not happen. And the evidence is overwhelming that it did not, did not happen when there should be massive amounts of evidence by this point that it did happen. But the media is completely and totally invested in this fairy tale like a five-year-old is in Santa Claus. And I have been trying desperately to get somebody in the mainstream media to at least take a look at the facts of this case. Because when you look at the entire factual record, it's not close. And I have uh, had some success in getting mainstream media people to look at it and even had some success in getting them to understand what really happened. But inevitably, in the end, they all chicken out. They all wimp out either on their own or their bosses censor them. 
I myself was censored along with another writer named Ralph Cipriano uh, last year when we were supposed to be uh, doing a – actually, two years ago, technically – a um, a cover story for Newsweek magazine uh, on this entire fiasco. Uh, one day before publication, Newsweek pulled the plug on what was going to be the longest, largest investigation of its kind for the magazine, unprecedented in this particular day and age. One day before publication, they totally wimped out. And that happened largely because the guy who had commissioned the piece, Bob Rowe, had been fired over a different matter months previously. So it has been incredibly frustrating. This has been the worst thing that's ever happened in my life. And I've had a lot of bad things happen, including, by the way, uh, I don't conclude this in the things that happened in my life, but my mother was killed in a car accident 25 years ago uh, this weekend, ironically enough. That was the worst event that occurred. But as far as my career and my my life in recent years, this is the worst thing. And it really should have been the best thing because I've done amazing work. Uh, I've made some, some major mistakes, but by and large, in an irrational world, <laughs> what I've done should have changed the entire narrative of this case and should have been praised by journalism everywhere because I did what no one else was willing or able to do. And in in reality, the exact opposite has occurred. And so a little over a year ago when Malcolm Gladwell contacted me, I was interested but skeptical because I'm like, all right, here we go again. (laughs) I know how this is going to go. He's going to show interest. Uh, I'll tell him everything that happened. He'll go, yeah, you sound right. And then in the end, there'll be a total, complete wimp out and nothing will happen. But I, even though I realize that this is the most likely scenario whenever I am contacted by somebody or I contact somebody, I give everybody the individual benefit of the doubt. Plus, at this point, after you put eight years into it, you're like, <laughs> I'm throwing good money after bad, but at this point, I got no money left on the story, so I, what do I got to lose? So... Anyway, Malcolm Gladwell has a new book coming out on Tuesday, uh, September 10th, where he has a chapter devoted to this entire saga. And he talks about how uh, he has had his opinion of this case change rather dramatically, largely because of my work. And he cites specifically one of hundreds of facts that I have uncovered that really changes the entire narrative and the entire timeline. And that is the date of the so-called Mike McQuarrie episode, which was at the epicenter of this entire so-called scandal. Now, for those who have forgotten or unacquainted, here's the basics of what the media told you happened. Mike McQuarrie a lowly graduate assistant, supposedly at first in 2002, sees Jerry Sandusky, a former assistant football coach at Penn State, sexually abusing a young boy in a Penn State shower. McQuarrie immediately goes to Joe Paterno. Joe Paterno does very little, just passing it up the food chain at Penn State. Penn State does absolutely nothing. Sandusky remains a free man for another 10 years. Then all of a sudden, uh, Sandusky is arrested and charged. Uh, Paterno is fired. Uh, Graham Spanier, the president of Penn State, is fired. Uh, Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, the two administrators, are indicted and effectively fired. The whole world collapses. Penn State 
is attacked by the media. Uh, they uh, are attacked by the Free Report, which was actually commissioned by Penn State. Sandusky gets convicted in just seven months with no continuances. The Free Report comes out claiming a cover-up. The NCAA then uh, almost gives Penn State football the death penalty all before the next football season starts. I mean, it was it's really one of the biggest news stories of this century. And that was the the narrative that we were told universally by the news media. Now, what Malcolm Gladwell has agreed with me on and what is so important is that the date of that episode, which has already been wrong once, is now been proven to be wrong a second time. And it has been proven by me and some others to be wrong a second time in a way that is catastrophic for the narrative and the timeline of this entire story. So just to set this up, the prosecution, when Joe Paterno is fired and all hell breaks loose, claims via, via Mike McQuarrie's very faulty memory that this event in the shower occurred on March 1st, 2002. Joe Paterno died believing that that date was the date that was the episode that destroyed his entire life and career. And that date was not true. We learned that date was not true because of emails provided by Gary Schultz. Gary Schultz is the administrator who would later be convicted, spend some time in prison. I have done the only interview ever done with Gary Schultz on this. I have not released it yet. It's 90 minutes long. It's amazing. And it proves that not only is the March 1st, 2002 date wrong, but the second date the prosecution provided, February 9th, 2001, is also wrong. It is catastrophically wrong. And that the actual date of this episode was December 29th of the year 2000. Now, that's incredibly important, not just because it proves that McQuarrie got the date, the month, and the year all wrong twice, which in a rational world would cripple his credibility, but now we have a six-week gap. We have a six-week gap from the December 29th date to the February 10th date, which we know to be the date because of emails, that Mike McCurry finally went to go see Joe Paterno. And so you can find out more about the details on this at framingpaterno.com. But that was the essence of what Malcolm Gladwell used to say, wait a minute. Everything we think we know about that episode, and maybe this whole case, is wrong. And so Gladwell agreed to be interviewed by me, gave me a full hour, uh, which I was eager to use. And the interview is quite fascinating. Now, we don't agree on everything. You can decide for yourself uh, what Malcolm Gladwell really believes. I urge you to listen very, very carefully to some of his answers, especially later on in the interview. But here is the interview we did with uh, best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell just a couple of days ago. Joining us now is noted intellectual filmmaker, podcaster, and the author of numerous best-selling books, including Outliers, Blink, The Tipping Point, and his brand-new book, Talking to Strangers. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Malcolm, before we discuss uh, my small involvement in talking to strangers and the topic to which I've devoted most of the last eight years of my life, tell us about talking to strangers and how you chose the vastly different subject matter for the many chapters in your book. Well, I wanted to, uh, I was, I wrote the book because I was 
um, emotionally affected, moved by the death of Sandra Bland. She was the most, one of those uh, series of high-profile um, cases in 2014, 2015, 2016 involving police and African Americans. And she's the woman, young woman who was pulled over by the side of the road in Texas, small town in Texas, and got into an argument with the police officer. And within three days, she was dead in her cell. Um, and I, you know, the whole exchange was captured on audio, and I listened, must have listened to it, you know, a dozen times, and just was struck overwhelmingly by how it was an example of kind of tragic miscommunication between two people who didn't know each other. And then I sort of realized that a lot of the high-profile cases that we have been concerned with in our society in recent years are about the same fundamental problem, that two people from very different worlds um, have an encounter and fail to see the truth about each other or understand each other. And so I thought I'd write a book about that. And that, so that led me to all manner of different examples of, from Amanda Knox to Bernie Madoff to the Stanford rape case and to the one I suspect we'll be talking about on this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you suspect correctly, uh, Malcolm. Uh, obviously, the, the primary reason I asked to interview you uh, is that uh, Chapter 5 of Talking to Strangers, which is entitled uh, The Boy in the Shower is the epicenter of the so-called Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky scandal, which exploded in November of 2011. And it resulted in the destruction of the lives of at least five men who had previously been uh, very well, uh, had great sterling reputations. And, uh, and I'm, so I'm, my first question of many I have, uh, because I've been directly involved in that case and, in part, uh, your writing of this chapter. What made you decide that this was a topic which warranted revisiting all these years later? Well, you know, I, I, I had written about it in a very preliminary way for The New Yorker um, uh, some years back, and um, and that was in... And I had just been struck by uh, how unexpectedly complicated the case was. And then, um, so it was in the back of my mind, and it did, it did very much seem to fall into this pattern that I was, be an example of this pattern I was interested in, which is how difficult it is to um, understand another's intentions, motivations, um, you know, that it's really, 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 really hard to read people we don't know well, and we make mistakes. Um, and so that I thought, oh, maybe I should go back and re-examine this, because like I said, I'd done a relatively cursory um, examination of it the first time around when I wrote for The New Yorker. And, uh, and so I, uh, in, you know, uh, I went back and descended into the enormous rabbit hole that is <laughs> That is the Sandusky case. It's it certainly, uh, you refer to it in the book as a rabbit hole. I uh, have gone probably even deeper down this rabbit hole than not just you, but anybody else in the world. Uh, exactly, much, yeah. much, much to my, uh, <laughs> my own p- potential uh, career demise. Uh, and I didn't intend to do it. I didn't want to do it. I-, I wish that someone else had done it. Uh, but in my view, someone had to do it because I believe the truth of this entire matter got lost. And like you... 
I went through a, a fairly, uh, not just a fairly, an, an absolutely dramatic evolution of thought. Uh, and it appears as if, based upon your book and this chapter you wrote about it, that you have also gone through an evolution of thought. At the beginning, when you wrote for The New Yorker, I, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but you, you were essentially sounded like you were saying, look, it seems like we might have rushed a judgment on Joe Paterno. The, the part about Jerry Sandusky being the child molester, that's all fine and good and, and solid, but maybe we should not rush to, to, to destroy Joe Paterno. And, and now, now you're not sure what the heck happened. Is that a fair analysis of, of your evolution of thought on this? Yeah, there's layers, to, as you know. Um, there are many, many layers to this case. Um, and layer number one is Joe Paterno. And, I, and that is, like, I don't care what side of this argument you're on. There's no way Joe Paterno belongs in this conversation. He was, you know, uh, told about the incident in the shower, and he immediately referred it to his superiors, as he is supposed to do. So... I don't. I, I've always, even before I knew anything about this case, I was baffled as to why people were piling on Paterno. Um, so that's layer number one, and that strikes me as being that ought to be obvious, and everyone ought to agree that Paterno was treated shamefully in the course of all of this, and um, his good name needs to be restored. Layer number two is uh, Spanier and his two top aides. Um, that's a little more complicated, and that originally I wasn't sure how I felt. Now, as a result of writing this book, I am absolutely of the opinion that no member of the Penn State um, uh, leadership deserved the treatment they got. They should never have been uh, tried. That the, the, um, uh, the, uh, the prosecutors in the case behaved abominably with respect to them. I don't know what on earth. They were supposed to have done. I mean, so I now feel like, and I, I focus on Spanier in my chapter. Sp- I think Spanier is um, is now is as much a victim as Joe Paterno is. Um, he is an honest, decent man who behaved the way we want our leaders to behave, and I am ashamed to be part of a society that tried to put him behind bars. Um, so that I'm absolutely clear on. Level three <laughs> is Sandusky, and I have no clue. No clue about that case. Well, let's talk about that. Um, you know, my wife and I uh, were watching you on television a few years ago, and this is after I had gone through my dramatic evolution, which was almost exactly only exaggerated uh, what you went through. My first reaction was, "Wait a minute! Why is Joe Paterno even being talked about here?" Uh, by the way, I, I believe that the evidence indicates that if it wasn't for Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky would not be in prison today. In fact, he might not even have been arrested. That's the absurdity. That's the upside down nature uh, of the entire case. But we were watching you on television. I don't even remember the subject matter. But I said to her, if I can ever get the opportunity to talk to Malcolm Gladwell, I can convince him of what really happened here. And you emailed me uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, and we had a, a, a fairly extensive conversation, and you asked me for some documents, and, and I uh, readily participated because I thought, wow, I've been waiting for years for somebody in the mainstream who is respected uh, to look at this and at least start to ask some questions. 
And and I really appreciate that you have done that. And I understand why you're not ready to say you know for sure what happened. But you do cite me in the chapter in the book specifically with with one incredibly important element of this saga, which is the date of the so-called Mike McQuarrie episode. Now, I've already explained to our listeners in some detail the background here, so we don't need to get into to the weeds so much. But you say in the book that the evidence gathered by Ziegler on this point is compelling. Uh, and, for, and, and the Reader's Digest version is that the date is still catastrophically wrong and that the entire narrative and timeline is wrong and that there was a six-week gap between the time that Mike McQuarrie allegedly saw or witnessed whatever it was he witnessed in the shower and when he went to Joe Paterno to make that infamous report. How did you come to the conclusion that the evidence gathered by me on this point is compelling? Well, it wasn't any, I mean, it's not because of any particular uh, insight or or skill on my part. The evidence gathered by you is compelling. I mean, I read the evidence that you gathered, and you convinced me. Uh, You know, it clearly, so we already, as as your listeners doubtless already know, McCreary was already off by, what was he off by, a year? Thirteen months. <laughs> Thirteen months. So the date's already up in the, up in the air. For some reason, they settled on a date which, as you point out very clearly, um, is implausible. And then you offer a more plausible date. If somebody wants to come up with, I'm, I looked, couldn't find anyone who responded with a different date, said, Ziggler's wrong, here's another more plausible date. So... I mean, there are plenty of people in, out there who are deeply invested in this case. If somebody has a better, can come up with a better argument than you about when the incident in the shower took place, by all means, come forward. For the moment, I think you, you've, you've convinced me. I mean, the, it, it plainly did not happen on the day the prosecution um, insists it did, right? So that much I think we can all say that's, just bullshit, um, uh, as you as you clearly point out. So it's got to be another day. What date is it? Well, let, um, let's talk about why. Make it clear why this is so important. Because because, because the the date that currently the prosecution claims, which you say is bullshit, very eloquent by the way, uh, I agree with uh, the date they say it it happened was the night of February 9th of two thousand and one. The reason why that is critical is that it's the next morning that Mike McQuarrie goes to see Joe Paterno. And if Mike McQuarrie goes to see Joe Paterno the next morning, that shows urgency, right? That shows, that shows wow, something big happened. That's at least theoretically, underline theoretically, consistent with seeing something like a sexual assault. However, if it's December 29, 2000, and there's a six-week gap then that's inconsistent with seeing something dramatic. And it is my opinion that the prosecution reverse-engineered the whole story, needing it to be on the 9th, and didn't even bother with the fact that the 9th is totally inconsistent with McQuarrie's own testimony, the testimony of Dr. Dranoff, his friend, the friend of his father, who he allegedly spoke to the night of the episode. It's inconsistent with... 
with with a lot of other testimony, including that of Jerry Sandusky, including that of Jerry Sandusky's college roommate, including that of Gary Schultz, who's done an interview with me that has not been released publicly, although you've listened to it, one of very few people who have. It, it, to me, this is a, a giant puzzle, and the only way to make the puzzle pieces fit is if it is December 29th, and that to- you agree that that totally changes the whole story, if I'm right, correct? Yeah, so what it does, and what interested me about this is, was, is and you sort of alluded to it, is um, it sheds a really important light on McCreary's um, motivation. Not motivation, his interpretation of what happened. So my whole argument in my book is that this is a case shrouded in doubt. It is not this, it is, um, it is the polar opposite of the Larry Nasser case. Yes. So Larry Nasser and Sandusky are on the surface evidence of, and you actually made this point first, um, uh, on the surface they appear very similar, right? Right. Pedophiles operating in a university context for years and years and years without being um, identified by, or uh, without being identified by uh, the administration or law enforcement. They're totally different. There was the, the, the victims of Larry Nasser, from the moment they were victimized, were going to their parents and saying, I was victimized. They were going to their coaches. They were going to anyone who would listen. I was victimized and nobody would listen, right? They would make contemporaneous, um, they would tell people that it happened. They would enter it. They would write entries in their journals saying about what happened. I mean, that case, the, to the extent there are doubts, there are doubts in the people, the people who were being told, who were listening to the victims, decided that they didn't, either didn't believe them or... Right. Um, right. In this case, this case is totally different. This case is a mess. This case is, like, shrouded in all manner of mystery. And the, up to and including the, num- the most important witness in the whole case, um, which is Mike McCreary, who... Um, and if your date is correct, and I believe that it is, he saw something in the shower and spent weeks thinking about it. That is consistent with someone who isn't sure about what he saw. And McCreary himself says, I wasn't sure about what I saw, right? His words were right. twisted by the prosecution in a way that I found so egregious, as you did too, um, that uh, uh, he sat and thought and mulled it over and didn't know what he thought and went home and told his father and his father's best friend, and they didn't know what to think about it either. You know, they too, the, Dr. Dranoff has a, has a legal responsibility to report cases of child abuse that come to his attention as a medical doctor. He did not, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because he also wasn't sure about what had happened. This is a case where they were, there was a mountain of doubt. Now, that does not mean... Where you and I differ is that you, you come down, you say this mountain of doubt, your interpretation is that Sandusky is innocent. My position is I don't know. But for the moment, I don't think that matters. I think that the crucial thing here is to communicate to the general public that this thing is murky. And even the guy at the very center of it, McCreary, saw something and, and was so uncertain about what he saw that at the very least he took a month and a half to tell someone in a position of authority at Penn State about it. That is, you know, the kids, I give the, I have another chapter in my book on the Penn State, on the, on the uh, Stanford rape case. The, 
That case was discovered by two grad students are bicycling across the Stanford campus at midnight, and they see a couple on the ground, uh, and they think they're just making out, mm-hmm. and they get a little closer, and they realize that the girl isn't moving and the guy is. And that's all it takes. They run after the guy. Right. <laughs> they tackle him. Right. And they call the cops instantly. Right. right? McQuarrie does none of that. McQuarrie does none of that. He goes upstairs, calls his dad, and goes home. And, right. spends, and then waits six weeks to tell his boss. So, you know, right. that, the idea that this, this, is, this is this crucial thing, and, I, and my, my hat is off to you, John. Um, you have been banging this drum, and I think appropriate that this case is hard. It is not open and shut. It's not Larry Nasser. It is something. It's his own animal. And um, I think that's evidence of something larger here, which is that um, these kinds of cases in general, this, or, or something that our ability as human beings to see the truth about strangers, others, is, is, um, uh, is far from perfect. I want to talk more about that in, in light of the Gary Schultz interview that I, I shared with you. But I, I, it's a great point on Larry Nasser, and it's not just what you mentioned. I know you, 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 just, you just forgot to mention this part. Larry Nasser had massive amounts of porn. There's, there's no porn in the Sandusky case. I would also suggest there's nothing similar to this case in the Dennis Hastert situation, the Jared Fogle situation, the Harvey Weinstein situation, the Jeffrey Epstein situation. They're all fundamentally different from this one. Uh, and and when, after yeah. all, this, all these years of investigation, all these many people looking at it, all this media attention, there should be a mountain of evidence. And, in fa- and instead, we get all this murkiness. Now, let's go back real quick to uh, McQuarrie. Because uh, just so you understand my interpretation, I think you know this, but I want to make sure you do. My interpretation of what happened with McQuarrie is he sees something weird. He's upset by it. I get it. Nope. I have no issue with that. Uh, I think he, oh, he thinks it over the New Year's holiday when, you know, he's not going to bother Joe Paterno over New Year's holiday. And he realizes, you know what? Maybe I didn't really see anything that bad. Maybe I don't want to get involved in this. Maybe, you know, who knows what the heck happened. It was only two or three seconds through a mirror. Uh, and, I, you know, I obviously didn't do anything at the time. He lets it go. And over time, he decides, you know what, I'm not going to do anything about this. But then, and this is the only part of the chapter that I took issue with, Malcolm, uh, and that is you leave out a key part of this equation. And the key part of the equation is there is something that happens that logically facilitates him suddenly going into action and going to talk not to the police, but to Joe Paterno on the morning of February 10th. And that is that either on the, on the morning or the afternoon of the 8th or the morning of the 9th, Mike McQuarrie learns as a graduate assistant that there's a new job open. At Penn State football, because yeah. Kenny Jackson has gone from the Penn State Nittany Lions to the Pittsburgh Steelers. The wide receiver's coaching job is open, and Mike wants that job desperately. Interestingly, he doesn't get the job at the time, which should blow apart the cover-up theory, because that's the first thing that happens in a cover-up. Congratulations, Mike. Thanks for coming to us. Uh, here's your new job. Keep this between you and us. That, didn't yeah. ha- that did not happen. He got the job three years later when it opened up again. 
I'm curious. I know you've got space considerations, and it's a short chapter, and you did an incredible amount of research for a short chapter. But why did you leave out the part about a job opening the day before he just happens to go see the guy who could give him the job? Uh, I mean, interesting question. You know, there's a... I felt that I had given my readers enough information, enough evidence. What I was trying to do was to prove the case is hard and shrouded in doubt, and I felt that I had done that sufficiently by that point. Um, also, I, I'm, I, uh, and maybe this is the sense in which you mean it, I'm not sure, I mean, my interpretation of that, and I think that's a, it is an interesting fact, is, you know, this is incredibly awkward. The subject of, if you're going to accuse uh, someone who is of Sandusky's stature in right. Penn State right. of something this, this strange and unusual and upsetting and you know, it must have tormented McCreary. And um, I don't think that psychologically and emotionally he could go to Joe Paterno and tell the story if that's the only reason for his visit. What I imagine happened is he's like, oh, now I have an excuse to go and see Joe for something else. They talk about the job opening. He says, I want the job opening. And then he goes, I imagine at the end of the conversation, he says, oh, Joe, there's some one other thing. I want to talk to you about that's been on my mind for a while. It's super upsetting, weird thing. I haven't, you know, I don't want to, you know, I feel like he needed my psychological reading. And this kid, everything I read about McCreary suggests to me that he was torn up about this um, five different ways. He honestly did not know what to do or think. Um, he saw something um, that upset him, but was sufficiently ambiguous that he didn't do anything at the time. And then I honestly thought, I mean, I think he must have lost weeks of sleep. Okay, but, so then why did he miss the, misremember the date, the month, and the year of the episode, Malcolm? Why well, did I he, don't know. Why did he think he hap- it happened after 9-11 when it actually happened before 9-11? If this, was such a, because, if this was such an incredibly important moment in his life, how do you forget yeah. that to that extent? I don't, well, I'm, you know, again, without, um, there are, there's five different ways to interpret this. I'm giving you... No, I get it. And by the way, Malcolm, right. with all due respect, your interpretation is not that far from mine. I don't no, know... No. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't... That's what I'm saying. I, yeah, no, I agree. I think we're... I think... I don't... You know, I did a, I did a podcast on, on Brian Williams, um, the Brian Williams case of him remembering that he was... Right. Misremembering. And I, I, I am someone who is a strong believer in the fallibility of human memory. So... Um, I believe that he, what he remembered was how upset he was and confused he was by what he saw, but I'm, that is something he will never forget and never get wrong. But dates are things. Yeah, but wrong. years, years for football coaches are, especially for college football coaches, are everything. You remember everything by the year in which it happened, because the football season is encompassed within one calendar year. And so I I have a much more difficult time with that part. I also have a difficult time with the fact that I'm not 100% sure you know about this, but I have an email from Sue Paterno, who was there that day, saying, saying that the meeting between Mike and Joe was three minutes. Three minutes. Now, 
it's not possible to talk about a sexual assault to Joe Paterno in three minutes. Uh, um, And and I believe, and and Sue has a legendary memory, and she has actually been, because of her family's position on this, she has been uh, no friend to Sandusky at all. Uh, I frankly think she should have testified to this at trial, but this is part of the schism that creates the perfect storm of injustice in this case, because the people that, and this goes to your talking to strangers thesis, I truly believe that in a way that you may not even fully realize, having lived this case for eight years, that, that you're talking to strangers thesis is exactly why this happened. Because when the story breaks, everybody scatters. Everyone's fragmented. Those who should be united are, are not even talking to each other. It's the Ben Franklin, we shall all hang together or we will surely hang separately. Uh, the interview I sent you of Gary Schultz, I think, illustrates that tremendously. Do you see that as I do in this case? Yeah, it's. A, I mean, like I said, the case is a mess. I mean, it's just a mess. It's like every time you dig into one corner of it, things just get weird and hard and complicated. I, I wanted to go back to, to um, McCreary's memory for a moment. Uh-huh. Um, he does, you know, so... On a cer- in a certain, there's two, there's a, it's, it's worth, I think, thinking about all the possible scenarios here. So certain things he does clearly remember. The campus was deserted. So that's an important part of, so he's not, it's not like this thing, there are certain facts about that evening that are, are uh, seared into his memory. The campus is deserted. He sees something that upsets him. He runs upstairs, he calls his dad, he comes home, he sees, talks to dad and drain off. Everyone's in agreement that that absolutely happened. Right? I'm, I, by so, the way, I'm, I, just for the record, I'm not absolutely certain it happened that night. I'm not, I mean, there's no, there's no proof of that, but I'll accept it for the sake yeah, of argument. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. But even, even the, so this is consistent with our understanding of memory that, that we might get the big emotional from the standpoint of if we if we want to personalize someone's memory, from the standpoint of his memory, what matters is the emotions he felt and the actions he took. What doesn't matter is the date. So the same thing with Brian Williams. His memory is true of that famous incident where he says he was part right. of a helicopter that got shot down and he wasn't. It was a helicopter behind. But his helicopter did come under fire. And what his memory, the emotional truth of his memory was, that he was scared out of his mind, right? That's what he remembers. So later he says, oh, I was scared of my mind. That must have meant that we were shot down. But in fact, no, it just meant that he was scared out of his mind and he was shot at. That's, those are the tricks our memory play on us. So I don't, I, that's why I, I'm so ready to believe your argument that it's December 29th, because I don't think there's any reason that we, first of all, McCreary, plainly demonstrated he couldn't remember what day it was in the, in the first place. But there's no reason for us to hang all of this on the memory of, uh, of McCreary in this case. He remembered what he needed to remember, which was that he was very upset. Okay. The second thing that's interesting, though, here is um, that he, and this is, again, stuff I know from your reporting, you know, he was, the prosecution really did a number on McCreary, right? They ran, they took his story and misinterpreted it. In, right. Um, and, you know, there's a scenario here where they, they come up with the February date. In his gut, he knows, you know what, that probably that can't be right. 
But he's like, what choice do I have at this point? Oh, he's locked in. He's locked in. He's locked in. So, I mean, there's a version of this where right now McCurry's walking around saying, you know, I don't know when it was, but I don't think it was February, but I don't. He couldn't even, he couldn't even, he tries to say, you've totally misrepresented my testimony. And does he ever say that publicly? No, he only says it in a private email, right? Right, right. The kid, I have incredible sympathy for McCreary. Well, well, well I, I don't have as much sympathy because I, I know that uh, he's a bad person. Uh, I know his, why his wife divorced him, uh, it, despite the fact that he's a, a rich hero uh, and, and, uh, and famous for, for being an alleged hero and a media darling. But I wanted, I wanted to throw, you, throw out my theory on how Mike's memory actually worked and, and get your, your expert opinion on, on this. Because, again, we're not far off, but I think this is an important nuance. I'm a big believer that this case is a lot like the Loch Ness Monster. That, uh, that Mike McQuarrie saw something in the water on December 29, 2000. He saw ripples. He saw maybe a head poke out of the water. He didn't know what it was. It was weird. It was memorable. Uh, but he, didn't, he had never heard that there was such a thing as a Loch Ness Monster at that time. He didn't hear about a Loch Ness Monster until 10 years later when investigators come to him by the way, he thinks at first that they're coming after him personally for having sent naked pictures of himself to a woman, not his wife, through a Penn State phone. He's thrilled that that's not why they're talking to him. And people he trusts, he's not, you know, he's a younger guy. He, he's a football coach. This is not his area of expertise. People he trusts are telling him, look, uh, we've been investigating Jerry Sandusky for two years. We've got a, a kid named Aaron Fisher who says he's been molested by him for years. We are desperate for some evidence. We hear through an, a weird email we got from a former Baltimore police officer that you may have seen something. Can you help us? Mike now thinks, oh, my gosh, there's a Loch Ness monster. And what I saw 10 years ago must have been evidence of the Loch Ness monster. Does that ring True to you, Malcolm. Yeah, I mean, there now he feels. I mean, if he's been tortured about this uh, for years and years and years, now he he has a, what seems like independent confirmation that his worst suspicion may have been true. So, yeah, I mean, I think in the way that that works, the cops coming to him with a kind of predetermined conclusion um, to what he saw allows him to allows him to say, yeah, okay, I think that's the way it worked. Um, it allows him to allay some of his, um, some of his doubts. Um, I mean, it's like a lot of this is, the bottom line on this case is that there, you know, we like to pretend when we reconstruct narratives about events like this that they're clean and tidy and um, easy to interpret. And, you know, this, this case is fundamentally proof of, how the opposite is true, that right. a lot of these things are unbelievably complicated. And you know, at the end of my book, I say that we need to be humble and cautious, um, humble in our, uh, cautious in our, how quickly we come to conclusions, and humble in the number of conclusions that we are willing to come to about strangers. And I think this applies here. Like, like I said, my, my focus is really on the Penn State administration, that we were way, 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 way too quick to come to judgment about um, uh, about the Penn State leadership on this. Um, and 
uh, and on Joe Paterno. Um, and in way too quick to kind of think of McCreary's evidence as this kind of cut-and-dried um, testimony, when in fact it's not, right? I mean, well, the chapter, not. the chapter of your book is entitled The Boy in the Shower. So let's talk about The Boy in the Shower uh, briefly. Uh, you are the first mainstream uh, uh, writer, uh, outlet, uh, to actually name the boy, Alan Myers. Now, I tried to name Alan Myers, who was almost 14 years old at the time of the episode. I, I don't think, even think you know this, but the Today Show prevented me from saying his name uh, for a myriad of nonsensical reasons. Uh, Matt Lauer actually backed me up to a certain degree uh, in what I was allowed to say there. But you name him. And, uh, and his story <laughs> is amazing on so many levels. But let's forget for a second that he denied that Anything ever happened as a 24-year-old married sergeant in the Marine Corps on the day Joe Paterno was, was fired and had knowledge that only the boy in the shower could possibly have had uh, on that date uh, of, no- of November uh, 2011. How amazing to you, Malcolm, is it that this entire case, that all these people got destroyed, hundreds of millions of dollars lost, probably the biggest sports scandal of the century so far, it might not even be close, and the, the epicenter of the whole thing has a, has, an ep, has, has a situation where no one testified at trial as the victim, and the prosecution told the jury that the identity of that person was known only to God, which was a lie because they knew it was Alan Myers. They, didn't, they just didn't like his story. How amazing it, is it to you that that not only happened, but that the news media showed zero curiosity about, wait a minute, where's the boy in the shower? This is the most highly publicized case of alleged child molestation in American history. There's millions of dollars on the table for whoever comes forward. It only happened 10 years ago. Where's the kid? How amazed are you at that set of circumstances? Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's bizarre. How come? So, guy comes forward says, I was the boy in the shower, and he never testifies at the trial? Like, just because the prosecution didn't like the story, you're right. That's weird. How do you, how do you prosecute Penn State leadership for uh, endangering the welfare of a child when you don't know who the child is? Right? Yeah. Or, I mean, the whole thing is kind of bizarre. The specific case which leads to the conviction of the Penn State leadership was this case, right, in the, in the beginning. Right. Um, and yet this case is somehow without a victim. And I think you're right as well. Like, the kid, where's the kid? If it's not Myers, who is it? Um, you would think it would be incumbent on the prosecution to have a good answer to that. And their answer, this is just another way. I just think there are two things, two conclusions I have on this, and you probably have much stronger One is, like I said, I thought the prosecution behaved egregiously in this case and continues to behave egregiously. They are still holding out the threat of of criminal proceedings over the head of Graham Spanier. That is, you know, outrageous. It is outrageous they're continuing to hound a 100% perfectly innocent man in this case who did absolutely nothing wrong, who was a 
who was as fine and brilliant and uh, and honest and courageous a president the Penn State has ever had, the state of Pennsylvania continues to threaten him with that's outrageous number one. But two, the other thing is, man, did Sandusky have some bad legal representation? <laughs> I mean, good lord, like you know, like I said, I am. I should say once again, I do not. I do not have an opinion. I, I find this case so confusing. I I do not have an opinion on his guilt or innocence, but I do know this. I hope if I ever get in trouble, I have a better lawyer than he did. Because, like, where, you know, you've got to agree with me on that. Like, oh, yeah. come on. No, no, I, I defended Joe Amendola, his attorney, for a while because I think he's a decent guy who was incredibly overwhelmed under uniquely bad circumstances. I mean, the trial was seven months after Joe Paterno gets fired. The entire community is being accused of enabling a child molester. They are invested in, in his conviction. Penn State is invested in his conviction. Uh, everybody is. I mean, Louis Free is chomping at the bit for his conviction so that he can come out with the Free Report, which will vindicate the Penn State Board of Trustees. The NCAA is thirsting for Free to come out so that they can punish Penn State football. The timing of this is all incredibly suspicious because it all gets done just in time for the next football season. So yeah, there's a lot of blame to go around. But I don't want to leave Alan Myers just yet, uh, Malcolm. Uh, talk to me. Does it not bother you, as it bothers me, that no one in the news media, this case got incredible amounts of coverage, no one in the news media found the lack of a witness to testify remotely curious or worthy of inspection. And then here I find out on my own who that guy, kid, actually was. I go on the Today Show. I wave his statement live on the Today Show, thinking naively that somebody in the media is going to call me and say, wow, that sounds like an interesting statement. Can you, can you share it with me? Nobody did. Talk to me about the mob mentality, the herd mentality of the news media, and how afraid anyone is to go against a narrative once it is set, especially when going against the conventional wisdom is so toxic like it is in a case like this. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's funny. It's, there, is a, uh, there is a kind of group mentality sometimes that takes place in these cases, um, at least in the, in, in the early going. I, I remain a lot quite confident that... Um, that that you know now there's been there's been you there's that there's the, the Pendergast book, which um, is a very 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 compelling document. I've taken up this case in a limited way. I think others will over time. But let me tell you a story, a very very small story. When I did my article for the for the New Yorker on the Penn State case years ago, on Sandusky case, I got into an email exchange with a reporter. For Deadspin, the sports who oh. been covering the case for Deadspin, yeah, and uh, he really, 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 really disliked my New Yorker piece. Right, and so I actually sent him a very nice email because I was trying to engage him in a conversation. And I said, you know, uh, if you believe, if you're looking for people, if you believe that Sandusky is uh, a child molester, and you're looking for people to blame, why does no one mention there was a in that first case of the kid who showered with Sandusky, um, you know, where the case was investigated and Sandusky was cleared. 1998. The, 1998. So-called victim number six, who, whose testimony sounds like he's a defense witness, by the way. But go ahead. Yeah. Um, that kid's case is reviewed by a number of 
psychologist and with Child Protective Services, and I believe I can't remember exactly. And I think two said they thought it was nothing, and one of the people said that she saw Sandusky, she interpreted Sandusky's behavior as uh, as that of a, a, a classic example of a pedophile grooming a potential victim. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are that woman, and you are uh, presumably an expert in this issue, um, and you come to the conclusion that a prominent member of the Penn State community um, is grooming victims for child molestation, um, and you you deal with the case and it goes away, why do you never say anything? Right? Mm-hmm. I don't, what I didn't understand was why people were so upset for with Joe Paterno, even though right. Joe Paterno did exactly what he was supposed to do, turned over the case to his superiors. And Joe Paterno, not... He's a football coach. He is not an expert in pedophilia, right? <laughs> right. We don't, that, is, that is about as far from his area of expertise. So you're really upset about the guy who has no formal training whatsoever in this, in this area, even though he does the right thing. You're not upset at all with the expert in this but, case, but, one of the experts. But Malcolm, is, but Malcolm, Deadspin only gets traffic if it's attacking Joe Paterno. Because he's a celebrity. I know, I know, but I tried to bring this up with him, and he now, I wrote him a long, very nice, thoughtful email, actually, in which I just said, what about her? Why, why don't we talk about, why didn't anyone go and talk to her and ask her why she never said anything? And uh, I never heard back from him. Of course um, not. I, I, and I, I think I, I know who you were talking to, because I think I've had uh, similar exchanges with the same person. I, I have to say, I had a very dim view of the news media before this case. I now have a, a view of the news media that is so low it can't get any lower because uh, some of the things that I have seen and experienced are just horrific and, and incredibly depressing. But I, I don't have enough time left in our interview to get into that specifically. I do want to ask you, Malcolm. You, you, I'll say one more thing before you. Yeah. Um, on this very point, part of the problem is there. So, you know, you and I are two people who. There is a long list of things that we agree upon and a long list of things that we disagree upon. Um, you know, I know what the kinds of things you've reported on in the, uh, in the past. You know the kinds of things I talk about. We have some political differences, but I don't believe that political or ideological differences should prevent people from having conversations, sharing information, and coming to uh, uh, conclusions or learning something about some new issue, right? It's, Amen. Amen. It's neither here nor there. Like, uh, I don't require that everyone that I uh, collaborate with, learn from, uh, read, do anything with, is someone with whom I agree with on all points. Um, you know, I happen to love Barack Obama. <laughs> I suspect you don't. But well, well, actually, I, I, I used to I used to dislike Barack Obama, but now I'm not so uh, not so bad on oh, him, oh, <laughs> considering what we oh, currently have. But all right, in, in our yeah. remain in our remaining moments, Malcolm, yeah. uh, you, 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 I got a, a bunch of things I want to get to real quick. You say in your chapter that I make some very good points about the case against Sandusky being very flawed, but that you mm-hmm. can't come to my conclusion that he is innocent. You've said in this interview that you don't know. Uh, yeah. you, you say that some of my arguments are convincing. Others are not <laughs> particularly yeah. convincing. Can you, can you give me an example of, of an argument I've made that you found to be f- fairly flawed or not convincing or, or, uh, or, or just not very good? No. Uh, well, it's not a specific argument. It's simply this, that, um, and, uh, that 
I, I think I, I would phrase it a little differently, actually, upon reflection. Oh, good. I have a lot more respect for, um, respect is the wrong word, concern about uh, the complications of um, uh, the kind of emotional and psychological complications surrounding um, sexual abuse. So I would say there is a scenario that I could believe that could explain why it was so hard to get people uh, uh, to come forward and say they were victims of of, of Sandusky. Uh-huh. In other words, so do I. I. I get that too. I, I absolutely understand that. I do. Yeah. Um, and so you know, I there's a part of me that says you know in a in uh, in a in a relatively conservative community in uh, in uh, Western Pennsylvania. Uh, for a young, uh, emotionally, you know, a young kid from maybe an emotionally troubled background to stand up and admit that he was molested as a 14-year-old is going to be really, really hard. I, I, and I get that. And that. that could explain why nobody would. Okay. Um, I, I know get, you get that, too. But, yeah, go ahead. Well, but here's, here's the thing, Malcolm. And, and I know you, I have incredible respect for what you've done here and your intellect and your, your courage in your, in your thinking but I, fr- I don't think that you are, are looking at this in, in the normal way that you would, in, in, with all due respect. Because this is the only case I can think of where the cover-up was, quote-unquote, proven before the crime was. Joe Paterno yeah. and Graham Spanier were fired. Tim Curley and Gary Schultz were essentially fired. They were indicted in the public mindset, in the media narrative. We've proven a cover-up before Jerry Sandusky even goes to trial. You have said there was no cover-up. You have, you have defended Joe Paterno and the administrators. If there's no cover-up, and, and this was a crime that was based Based, its foundation was the only way this happened was because Penn State, uh, some for some bizarre reason no one can explain, uh, decided to protect a former assistant coach uh, for these horrific crimes. No one can ever make that make any sense to me. But if the cover-up did not happen and the core issue, the core witness, the, the pillar of the case, Mike McQuarrie, is not reliable then how can you have any faith in anything that follows? The analogy I use is, it's like saying, you know what, I agree that when it comes to the North Pole, that reindeer can't fly, and that elves aren't really making uh, uh, toys for Santa, but Santa still is real, and Santa still does come to everyone's house on Christmas Eve and leave gifts. That doesn't make any sense, Malcolm. Uh, well, uh, yeah, like I, I can't take that final step. I don't. There, uh, I don't know. I mean, I there is still a there is a scenario in my mind where that said that something um, happened between um, between Sandusky and these boys, um, and that it was took a long time to come to light. And I mean, let me back up and say, in this year in my podcast, I interviewed this guy who was a. Uh, an expert in police shootings, and he walked me through a particular. He's done. He's investigated hundreds of of, of police shootings. A conservative guy, by the way. Um, and he was walking me through this one case, and I did the whole episode about this one case. He said this thing to me that I will. I'm going to try to never forget. 
And he said, Malcolm, always remember this when it comes to these kinds of cases. Every case is different. In other words, you have to be willing when you examine a case to start from scratch and put aside all of your preconceptions about how they typically unfold. And I think that is way more true for the other side in this case, because I think everyone, what happened with this case is that everyone said, oh, this is a child molestation case, so this is the way it ought to unfold. Right. It, it ought to have a cover-up. It ought to have all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, victims that should be easy to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, but also I think it's true on the side that's a little more skeptical. We can't, you know, it is entirely possible that this happened. It's just a weird But do you not, not, Malcolm, and look, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, and you know my respect for you, and I know the toxicity of this case more than anybody, but do you not agree that the actions of Paterno and the three administrators that you have defended make a hell of a lot more sense if Sandusky is innocent than if he is one of the worst pedophiles in the history of Pennsylvania? Would you agree, from an Oxum's Razor perspective, that everything fits better under the first scenario than the second? Do you agree with that? Uh, <laughs> you do agree with that, don't you? I Malcolm? think of them as separate. I think of like oh. I don't even understand. No, no, no. I draw a line between Sandusky and everybody else. Like I've told you, there's layer oh. level number one is Paterno did zero wrong. Level number two is if you look a little harder, the case against the leadership Spaniard and the leadership Curly and Schultz Spaniard makes no sense. Uh, level number three, I don't know what. As much as you know, it, you have convinced me that this is one hell of a difficult case. Yeah. Um, uh, but I cannot, I wrote a book called Talking to Strangers about how it's impossible to see into the hearts of strangers. I cannot see into the heart of, of Jerry Sandusky. I, I admire what you have done, um, and I, I would encourage others to read through it and reach their own conclusions. I think that you have, if we come out of this case, by saying it's an incredibly difficult case and we should never have treated um, Spanier, Curly, Schultz, and Paterno the way we did, I think you have won. Do you agree, um, do you agree Malcolm, that all of the environmental elements of a perfect storm causing a moral panic and a media rush to judgment, regardless of whether Sandusky is actually guilty, do you agree that those elements did exist to at least theoretically explain how an injustice of this magnitude could occur? Do you agree with that? Oh, sure. What I've just been talking about, Paterno, Curly, Schultz, and Spanier were the victims of a moral panic. I mean, they're like, like, that's exactly what happened with them. Like, it's crazy. Like, you get so worked up about this that you decide you want to you want to pull. You want to drag down the whole house, and the NCAA, the NCAA. I mean, we could. You and I could spend another two hours talking about the complete absurdity of the governing body of intercollegiate athletics punishing Penn State because of the conduct of a retired employee of the football team. I mean, this is bananas. As if, what does this have to do with football? Right. I mean. Right. It clearly has nothing to do with football. Right. That's something far more consequential, which is, you know, whatever lies in the heart of, 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 of Jerry Sandusky. So, like, there are <coughs> the idea that they, with a straight face, the NC2A could have jumped into this case. Um, and the Louis Free Report, I mean, that's another whole right. pile of crap. Right. Like, 
Pile of so, crap, absolutely. Um, Malcolm, last question because I know you got to go. Uh, you, you said already in this interview that you are confident that uh, over time others in the media will revisit this case. I don't agree with that, although I think you writing a chapter in your book is an opportunity for that to happen. Uh, why are you more optimistic about that than I am, and are you willing to do anything to try to help in that happening? Well, sure. I've, I mean, I, I, I'm going to talk about this case in, um, and your work uh, when it comes up on my book tour. and I've written a book which will be read by many people. Already I've heard from people who have read early versions of the book, and uh, they're a hell of a lot more skeptical about this case, I think, than they were going in. Um, but uh, I'm, in, I'm optimistic because I feel like over time there is an inevitable, um, I feel like the truth surfaces over time. Common sense over time surfaces. Uh, sometimes it takes a little longer than other times, but, um, and unfortunately, and I, people who are in the vanguard of that process of helping common sense surface uh, pay a price. You've really paid a price. Um, uh, uh, but I think you're going to live to see, to feel um, some measure of vindication. Like I say, if the result of this is simply that people come up to Curly Schultz and Spanier and say, um, you were done a terrible disservice, we are profoundly sorry, um, I, I, think, I think you would have won. I think you need to take that as a victory. Um, well, I, I haven't had very many victories over the last eight years, Malcolm, but I have to say uh, your book is, a, is at least a small one and, as you say, a, a measure of vindication. And I, and I thank you very much for having the courage to at least take an honest look at this. Uh, please make sure, uh, listeners, that you, you read Talking to Strangers. Malcolm, thanks so much for your time, and let's please keep in touch. Great. Thanks, John. So some thoughts on that interview with Malcolm Gladwell. First of all, uh, I thank him for his time, and I thank him for his effort in doing what he's doing because he has done more than anybody else within the media club to at least expose, hey, look, we ought to be asking at least questions about this whole thing and that there are elements of this case that are, in his own words, bullshit, including the prosecution's second date. And uh, and he rips the prosecution. He vindicates Joe Paterno. He vindicates Graham Spanier. He vindicates Tim Curley. He vindicates Gary Schultz. He, of course, does not want to vindicate Jerry Sandusky. Although, if you listen carefully, he can't say Jerry Sandusky is guilty either. So I have a few thoughts on on this, and I'm sure I'll have more in the future. And I have a column on Mediate that's coming out on uh, Monday that I hope that you will read and share uh, detailing uh, this whole interview. But here's some, some general thoughts. I guess the part of this interview is that from a personal perspective I was both uh, frustrated by and uh, pleased by was the fact that Malcolm Gladwell, when I asked him, I said, Malcolm, in your book you say that Ziegler makes some very compelling points uh, about Sandusky's innocence and then at other times makes some points that uh, you don't find very compelling. I said, so can you give me an example of a point that you did not find to be valid. And he said, no. Now, uh, then why the hell is that in the book, Malcolm? What, why? And to his credit, he does say in the interview that uh, he would have rephrased it. <laughs> well, 
let me tell you what really happened there. And I, again, I give Malcolm slack because he has something to lose here. I'm a, I'm a realist, okay? Uh, he has a lot to lose. What he's really doing in the book when he says that some of my points are good and some of my points are bad is that if someone after the book says, hey, are you endorsing when Ziegler said X, Y, or Z? He can say, no, no, it's in the book. I said there's some points that he made that I don't agree with. Yet he can't mention one. He can't name one. Which, Because if he had named one, I would have said, okay, wait a minute. Hold on. Let's talk about this. I'm more than happy. I've, I've done interviews with anybody who will have me to de- defend my work on this. I'm the only one that will do that. I'm the most transparent person in this entire damn case. But it was interesting that Malcolm admitted, no, nope, I-, I-, I can't come up with one, uh, John. Uh, as far as his view of who Mike McQuarrie is as a person, and this is, I think, goes to the, f- the difficulty of trying to get the truth out about this case. Because, you know, I've had only a couple of conversations with Malcolm Gladwell. This is an incredibly involved and complex case. You can't provide all the information you have in a very short period of time. It's just not logistically possible. If Malcolm Gladwell knew everything that I know about who Mike McQuarrie is as a person, he would not have his view, which I believe is a little bit naive, in fact, maybe a little naive, uh, more than a little naive, about what was going through McQuarrie's mind in that six-month, six-week, sorry, six-week gap between the time that he was in the shower and witnessed whatever he witnessed and then finally goes to Joe Paterno, it's important to point out, a day after he learns that the job he desperately wanted and needed happens to open up, and that's why he goes to the, jo- the person who can give him the job, Joe Paterno, instead of the police, if he's really reporting some sort of sexual assault. Let's just use our basic common sense here, folks. So I, I understand what Malcolm's doing there. It's also a bit of a politically correct position because you're not calling Mike McQuarrie a liar or a bad person. I mean, he's a media darling. And so you're, you're trying to be as understanding of his position as possible. And, you're, and everybody, and this is so frustrating, everybody in this case is looking for a narrative where they feel like there's at least some semblance of their version of the truth. And I think there's a little bit of what Malcolm Gladwell was doing here. I was interested, and uh, I don't have an explanation for this, as to why, despite me giving him two opportunities, Gladwell did not get into the content of the Gary Schultz interview that I had specifically sent him. Because the Gary Schultz interview, which again has not been made public yet for reasons that will become clear once eventually it is made public, this is an interview that I did, uh, a, um, I don't know how exactly, it was about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. And it's an amazing interview, but it's critical to understanding why the date theory is not just a theory. It's a fact. Gary Schultz is at the center of this whole thing. And while I believe I've proven it from every possible vantage point, the Gary Schultz interview really nails it from every possible Angle, because he was the guy who was living it. It was his meeting with Mike McQuarrie's own dad and Mike McQuarrie's dad's friend, both of whom, Dr. Dr. Don Dr. John Dranoff is his name, both of whom Mike claims to have talked to the night that he witnessed this episode. It is his meeting with those two guys, which makes it impossible for February 9th to have been the date. And, uh, and again, just to be very clear, it's not just from one angle. We prove this from every possible angle, and there's a ton more at my website and in podcasts that I've done that 
Malcolm Gladwell does not mention in his chapter. And I get it. He doesn't, he doesn't have all that much room. This is not a book just on this subject. Somebody, hell, you could write a book easily just on the date. And the reason why the date is so important to me is, one, it's clear cut and it changes everything. Two, you're not talking about child sex abuse. When you talk about the date, you don't have to talk about child sex abuse at all. And you can't talk about child sex abuse because people's brains explode. And they stop being rational. Uh, and they stop being, uh, you know, they start being incredibly politically. I do believe that there's a lot of political correctness in Malcolm's interpretation of the factual record here. And I confronted him on that. And, and I think he handled it in exactly the way I would have expected based upon what my perception of his beliefs are. If I had some more time with Malcolm and I really wanted to confront him on this inconsistency with regard to how he's evaluating Sandusky's guilt, which he says he doesn't have an opinion on either way, I would have gone into the Amanda Knox situation because Amanda Knox is another chapter in his book. And I find it amazing and incredibly hypocritical that Malcolm Gladwell feels perfectly safe in declaring Amanda Knox totally innocent, totally innocent of the murder for which she was once convicted but now has supposedly been exonerated. <clears throat> when Amanda Knox confessed, Amanda Knox confessed to that murder. Now, people give f- false confessions all the time. But there is no incentive to giving a false confession in a murder case like that. You're not going to get your sentence reduced. Uh, but And she did it. She did confess. Now, she recanted that confession later. But she did confess. Jerry Sandusky has never confessed. He's still appealing years later. He would have had a massive incentive to confess even if he was innocent because he was so dead to rights because of the media firestorm. He had no chance of getting acquitted. This was the Salem witch trial. And had he confessed, he would have gotten a far reduced sentence. The prosecution, if it had been done properly, would have jumped at the opportunity to avoid a trial because their evidence sucked. And they had no faith in the accusers that they were actually going to be able to stand up and tell their ever-contradictory nonsensical stories. So why did Jerry Sandusky never confess? Why did he never engage in plea bargain? Uh, uh, discussions. Why is he still using every dime he has to appeal? That doesn't make any goddamn sense, especially given the history of serial pedophiles. Serial pedophiles, here's how it works. They uh, get a tip, they get an accusation, they investigate, they subpoena the computer records, they find child porn, they nail them on child porn, they pressure them on the other stuff, they confess, they plea bargain, and there's no trial. That's the way this works except in the Sandusky case, because it didn't actually happen. And, uh, and so it's frustrating to me that, that uh, apparently Malcolm doesn't see the contradiction there. I applaud him for the Larry Nasser example, although I don't think he goes far enough. Larry Nasser, the gymnastics doctor for USA Gymnastics, the media has used that case time and time again to try to show, well, this is Penn State all over again. It's just like Sandusky. And, and Gladwell correctly points out that that's baloney. In fact, he cites me for having said this first, which is true. But there's other things about the Nasser case that are totally different than the Sandusky case 
that uh, that that Gladwell does not get totally into. Like, for instance, Nasser confessed. He pled guilty. His wife left him, divorced him immediately. No one wants to deal with, and I wish I would have had time to ask Malcolm about this, no one wants to deal with the fact that Dottie Sandusky not only never left Jerry Sandusky, but she's completely 100% supportive of him, despite the fact that he is the most hated man in America. They're using their last dime to defend him in an appeal that has no political chance uh, whatsoever. Uh, Her life has been totally destroyed by this, and yet she visits him every week. She defended him in court. She defended him on the Today Show. She defended him to CNN. She's defended him in every possible point. She spends an enormous amount of time investigating the accusers, who she knows personally, and by the way, for whom she has to be, uh, or for Jerry, she has to be an accomplice for Jerry to be guilty. People don't understand that either. This is not just a naive woman standing by her man. Based upon the evidence, based upon the testimony, based upon the prosecution's case, she has to be an accomplice in all of this. And she's not. She's the church lady. She knows he's innocent. Uh, I know Dottie incredibly well. We do not even like each other. We don't get along. Uh, you know, She's hung up on me for cursing on the phone. I know it's probably hard for people to believe that I curse on the phone. I know. Shocking. Uh, she does not like that. She hangs up on me. Uh, we, we, are, we are communicative, but that's about it. But there is absolutely zero chance, zero chance that, one, this could have happened without her knowing about it or being an accomplice, and, two, uh, zero chance that she would go along with that. Uh, and, and her actions aren't even remotely consistent with that. Uh, I also wish I would have had the opportunity to make sure that Malcolm addressed the issue of Jerry Sandusky's medical records. Because based upon his medical records, which I've never released yet, because I'm hoping some other media outlet might eventually become interested, he has effectively no testicular matter. I mean, in, in reality, not figuratively. I'm not talking, you know, no testicular matter like a bunch of, of the uh, sycophants around Donald Trump. I'm talking about literally no testicular matter. He has no testosterone and literally, effectively, almost no testicular matter which no one ever mentioned. Forget about the fact that this would prevent him from doing 90% of the stuff he's accused of doing from a physical standpoint. Someone would have mentioned this out of 36 accusers who got over $100 million from Penn State, yet nobody, nobody mentions this. Why? Because it happened. Because no one got close to those, those balls that didn't exist. Because none of this is real. It's all a fairy tale. Now, Another place where Malcolm Gladwell and I uh, greatly differ, and I'm going to talk about this in my Mediate column quite a bit, is that uh, his view that the media will eventually take another look at this and that truth and common sense eventually wins out, I believe is maybe even more naive than his view of who Mike McQuarrie is as a person. It is my interpretation that what Gladwell is trying to do here is – And this is all well-intentioned, and I applaud him for this. And I get he can only do so much. So I'm not at all critical of Malcolm Gladwell. I get it. Uh, I think he's trying to send a bat signal to the rest of the media. Hey, guys, can we please take a second look at this? You got this wrong. And he's spreading enough breadcrumbs in his book where someone might do that. And he believes that that will happen because he's Malcolm Gladwell. And he's been living a life 
that is frankly uh, sheltered and a bit in a, in a bit of a bubble. And I've seen this constantly. I know media stars better than they know themselves. All right, I've dealt with these people, and they do not live in the real world. The big media stars, they do not. I, unfortunately, very much live in the real world. I have lived this for eight years. A bat signal from Malcolm Gladwell is not going to be enough for the major news media to suddenly drop everything when there's a bunch of other stuff going on in the world to revisit a case that they may have completely catastrophically blown eight years ago. That's not going to happen. It's in no one's incentive to do that. Now, I've been working for well over a year on a USA Today investigative reporter who claims that they're going to be writing something about this also in conjunction with Malcolm Gladwell's book. But other than that, I don't see any major shift uh, in how the media is going to treat this. Now, maybe someday somebody will do something, but it's, even if that happens, it's not going to change the world. And it's becoming too late. I mean, it's a miracle that Jerry Sandusky is even still alive eight years after this. And by the way, I would suggest that that's another indication of his innocence. Not only is it, not only is it inconceivable that he hasn't gotten a divorce in these eight years, but he's still alive. <laughs> Just by virtue of the fact that he's alive is amazing. Uh, and I, I doubt seriously uh, that that would happen if he had any guilt about what he had actually done. But I digress. Uh, but anyway, I live in the real world, and I believe that the media is far too invested in their fairy tale. And further proof of that came uh, just a couple of days ago when Jay Paterno, the son of Joe Paterno, former Penn State of, uh, assistant coach, wrote a column about Malcolm Gladwell's book that was um, beyond infuriating. Beyond infuriating, because it basically uh, it ignores the new evidence on the date, which could be theoretically a blockbuster bombshell, and it it still goes into the same damn narrative of just we all missed the signs on Sandusky. He was a horrible pedophile. It even and Penn, and Michael Jackson fans will appreciate this. It, it even praises Jim frickin Clemente. Jim Clemente, who I know to be a total fraud, I know to be a complete liar. He's lied about me. He's been wrong about every freaking case he's ever really talked about, as far as I can tell. Uh, he got sued by CBS over the John Bonet Ramsey situation. They had to settle that lawsuit because he claimed bizarrely, inexplicably, that John Bonet Ramsey's brother killed her, uh, which there's, it's not possible. There's no evidence of that. Uh, he's not a credible person. And But he was brought in by the Paterno family to try to explain how Sandusky could be this serial pedophile and everyone at Penn State still be innocent. And so he got paid to give them an opinion, which is what my, Jim does. Hey, you're going to put me on TV and give me money? Sure. What do you want to know? What do you want to hear? That's the way Jim Clemente works. He is a fraud. I've met with him, even though he claims we never did. We had lunch on the, the set of Criminal Minds, the TV show he consults for. We've talked on the phone for hours. He's a fraud. And Jay Paterno is also a fraud because Jay Paterno knows Jerry Sandusky is innocent. I was in Jay Paterno's den for three hours. Eight years ago, or seven, I'm sorry, seven years ago, exactly, almost exactly seven years ago. Weekend of the first football game at Penn State for the 2012 season. After the trial, after the free report, after the NCAA sanctions. So everything's already out there. And Jay Paterno was one of the first people of any credibility who told me he didn't think Jerry Sandusky ever had sex with a boy at all. And then he proceeds to write out for me a sketch 
of the Latch building shower where this supposedly happened, where he's his view is that the, the evidence shows Mike McQuarrie could not even theoretically have seen what he claimed to have seen based upon the the outline of the of the shower. And I have this sketch. I tweeted the sketch in response to Jay Paterno's bullcrap column. Of course, he didn't respond because he knows it's real. It knows it's true. But he's he and his family have bought into this false narrative because Scott Paterno, his moronic brother, declared Jerry Sandusky guilty three days into this story. Doesn't want to admit he's wrong. They had a faulty view of what really happened. And they also had a stupid view of the strategy for getting out of this. This is all part of a strategy. And now Jay's a member of the Penn State Board of Trustees. And I guess he's terrified that if he says Sandusky is innocent, he'll get attacked. The Penn State uh, uh, fan base, even his fan base, will turn against him. And he won't be reelected to the Board of Trustees. And no one wants to be uh, criticized publicly. Well, you know what, Jay? Uh, your father would be embarrassed by you and your brother. Uh, you were gutless. You, you have less balls than Jerry Sandusky does. Uh, your brother has no brains, and he's got fake balls. And uh, it is because of you uh, that Joe Paterno will be unfairly uh, destroyed in, in the view of history. Because the only way at this point to salvage Joe Paterno's reputation is to salvage Jerry Sandusky's. I know you, you thought you could separate them, and that was the entire strategy. And in a rational world, that strategy might have worked. But uh, it didn't work. It failed miserably because you miscalculated and because you got duped. And now you won't correct it because you're morons and you're cowards. And now, because of you, uh, your father's reputation is destroyed forever. And oh, by the way, an innocent man's going to die in prison. And oh, by the way, uh, three administrators got convicted for things they did not do, two of which went to prison. The other is still fighting to stay out of prison. That's Graham Spanier. So uh, I have disdain for Jay Paterno. I have been incredibly patient about Jay Paterno, uh, incredibly patient, because I, again, for people who are in unique situations, I give them slack. People like Franco Harris, who I've become very close to, people like Malcolm Gladwell, they got a lot to lose, Jay Paterno, but I'm done. I'm I'm done being patient, and uh, Jay Paterno should be ashamed of himself. Uh, so that, that's those are my thoughts for now. I have more thoughts in the media column that will be out on Monday, which I hope you will read and share. I'll be doing an interview on State College Radio on both Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, discussing this further in a way that should be uh, very, very interesting. So make sure you look out for that in my Twitter feed, Zygmunt Freud. Uh, and I'm sure that at some point in the future, maybe the near future, I will do an entire episode just explaining every element of the date situation just so that my uh, critics uh, will <laughs> not, uh, you know, not be able to say, hey, uh, you, met, you left this part out or you left that part out because we've covered every possible angle of it. But I'm not sure I've ever actually done one podcast where everything is discussed in one place. Uh, I may try to do that on the state college interview, but I don't think we're going to have enough time. So I I may do that sometime in the near future on this uh, particular podcast. So uh, please make sure you uh, stay aware, and uh, it would be a real big help if you could could share that, especially the media column, when it comes out on Monday. I do want to at least mention, I've already referenced at the beginning of this hour, uh, that today would have been my mother's 76th birthday. Uh, Tomorrow is the 25th anniversary of her death in a car accident. 
Uh, we obviously, as humans, for some reason, you know, 25 years, 50 years, we think of those as big numbers. For me, the, the most amazing element of that anniversary is that now going forward, because if you think about it, you know, you don't really have any consciousness at all as a person until at least two, three years old, right? So going forward, I will now have had more memories and experiences in life after she is dead than before she died. And that's just mind-blowing in my, in my head. Uh, my mother is the reason that I am who I am, for better or for worse. She was a flawed uh, but very good person with good intentions. Uh, I have to say it's, it's a little ironic that I'm mentioning this in the context of the Penn State, uh, Jerry Sandusky, Joe Paterno story and what Malcolm Gladwell was referring to as at least my partial vindication because I really do believe that if my mother was not the way that she is, I would never have gotten involved in this. Now, that might have been a good thing. <laughs> so it's in a way, it's her damn fault. Uh, but uh, there's absolutely no question that she instilled in me the qualities that, for better or for worse, caused me to pursue this case and stay with it when a smarter person, a person who cared more about their own self-interest and didn't give a damn about the truth, would have given up long, long, long ago. Uh, but uh, she instilled to me that the truth matters and that you never give up. Uh, and that's what I've tried to do here. And, you know, there's been a lot of times when I was actually glad, not glad in the global, but in the, in the micro, glad that my mother was not around to see some horrible things happen, both in my life, our family's life, uh, the way the country is going. But this is one of those times where I wish that uh, she was around because she would have gotten a kick out of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, and uh, that would have meant something. But unfortunately, that's not going to happen. But I do want to at least uh, mention that uh, Carol Ann Trainer would have been uh, 76 today, and tomorrow is the 25th anniversary of her death in a car accident with her boyfriend at the time, who was a a judge in the Philadelphia area. That'll do it for uh, this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. As is always the case, I ask only two things of you, please. Word of mouth, social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. And number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.